All right, thank you. And thanks for coming here. We have a full house today, so that's good. Um, how many people have been to Pain Week before? Wow, how many people have not been to Pain Week before? Wait, I think I saw the same hands go up twice. <laughs> All right, so I think it's about half and half. Um, well, thank you for coming. My name is Jay Joshi. I am uh, an anesthesiologist, interventional pain physician, and I've been involved with stem cells and regenerative medicine since about 2012 or so, 2012, give or take a few months. Um, and it's a topic that, as you, I'm sure, by being here, it's a topic that uh, has gained a lot of excitement, a lot of press, a lot of interest. Uh, there's a lot of information that's out there that's real and factual, and then there's a lot of information out there that's hasn't been as real or as factual. Uh, as a result, it's led to a lot of controversy and a lot of um, confusion in the marketplace. So my goal today is to give you a little overview of this new and, I guess, emerging field. I would say you know, we're on version maybe 2.0 or 3.0 of regenerative medicine. Um, talk about some of the technologies that exist, some of the products that exist, give you an overview of the various products that are out there um, both stem cells as well as non-stem cell products, and then hopefully have some time for some questions and answers at the end of the presentation. Just a, again as a show of hands, how many, uh, how many of you out there have actually uh, treated patients with some type of stem cells or regenerative medicine? Okay, so probably about, I would say about 20% or so. Um, all right, very good. And um, is anyone here from uh, outside of the United States? What country? UAE. Okay. And how, what what are stem cells or regenerative medicine? Is that used there? Or okay. Okay. Very interesting. So, yeah. So so from the UAE and uh, and afterwards, I'd love to learn more about what they do in the UAE. But uh, regenerative medicine is is an option there. I know if, if there is no one here that practices in Israel, is that correct? Okay, so you know, we've heard a lot of developments uh, and a lot of options that, that patients have had in Israel that aren't available here. So we can all learn from everyone else and their experiences throughout the world. I don't think right now the United States is necessarily the leader in regenerative medicine, so it is kind of nice to, to get that feedback from our colleagues elsewhere in the world. All right, with that, let's get going. Uh, I have nothing to disclose with this presentation. Um, and the outline today, we're going to be, number one, reviewing uh, an overview about just inflammation, uh, go over what inflammation is, define regenerative medicine, because I think that ultimately, if you take nothing else away from this presentation, it's, it's learned that regenerative medicine is actually a, a, a field of medicine, and within that field, uh, in, you, you have stem cells within that field. Give you a history of stem cells, uh, differentiate between the different types of stem cells that exist, discuss autologous versus non-autologous stem cells, and then finally compare non-stem cell regenerative products. So what is pain? We'll talk about this definition actually in some of my other presentations as well because I think every time you talk about pain, you have to give a definition of what pain is. Um, as we all know, pain can be a, something that's sensory and or emotional. And in this particular sense, when we're talking about specifically regenerative medicine, we're looking at the inflammatory component of pain. So, and what is inflammation? Inflammation 
uh, can be provoked by a number of different triggers, but it's caused by either some type of physical, chemical, or biologic agent. And not to get too much into detail about the different types of, of uh, inflammation, but we can have peripheral and central inflammation. We'll talk a little more about central inflammation and central sensitization later today if you're coming to my lecture at around 4.30 or so on central sensitization. So discussing specifically now peripheral inflammation, some of the signs that we see include things like pain or heat, redness, swelling, loss of function. And the impact of that, which we all see in our practices, can include decreased function, obviously decreased um, um, uh, happiness, decreased appetite, decreased uh, um, uh, sleep, lack of concentration, um, increased stress. And those all cause that feedback loop where you see this, that neuroimmunologic response then causing even more pain or more symptoms and even more inflammation. Inflammation is not a bad thing. It tells you, hey, something is wrong. But the problem occurs, what happens when inflammation doesn't end? What happens when it becomes more of a chronic disease? What happens when inflammation becomes the disease itself and the initial disease is no longer the problem? And that's what we call non-resolving inflammation. Non-resolving inflammation can occur, again, for, for, for a variety of different uh, sequela or conditions. Some of them may include things like prolonged or excessive response. It can include a subnormal response, inadequate production of different mediators. Um, they can be a result of certain conditions, such as cancer or obesity. Um, other conditions, such as asthma, which continuously stresses the body and then, and then sends the body into this continuous inflammatory condition. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, irritable bowel disease, which, which all, in and of itself is a very vague term because there are so many different types and slices of irritable bowel disease, which we won't get into here. But the main point here is it's, it's causing unresolved inflammation, diffuse inflammation where the inflammation itself is now the disease and needs to be treated independently of whatever else was causing the problem to begin with. So how did we get into this? Uh, uh, how did the body even create this, this response called inflammation? We have to dial it back all the way to, to how we were created and how we evolved. If we look at the central nervous system and the immunologic system, we start seeing that both of those systems um, grew in congruence with each other and almost really inversely proportional to each other. Um, as we became more developed from a central nervous system standpoint, um, our immune system became more developed and more sensitive. And interestingly enough, our regenerative ability started to decrease. So we are no longer those starfish which can regrow a limb, or I think it's an iguana or lizards that can regrow their tail. Um, we can't do that anymore, as you know. So our only regenerative ability exists in our liver, where we can regrow parts of our liver, uh, and that's about it. So as we became more complex from a neurologic standpoint and an Im Im immunologic standpoint, we became less uh, able to self-heal and self-regenerate. So what is regenerative medicine? What does this mean, this, this you know, sexy term, regenerative medicine? We see all these clinics now popping up everywhere saying they do regenerative medicine, um, or they call themselves stem, stem cell clinics. What are they actually doing in those clinics? Um, well, hopefully they're doing what we're going to talk about here. So regenerative medicine is a branch of medicine that deals specifically with the process of replacing, repairing, and or restoring normal tissue and function. So ultimately, that's the main goal. Um, whether that happens all the time or not is, is a separate issue, but that's the ultimate goal. 
the field also includes the possibility of growing tissues or organs in a laboratory and implanting them when the body cannot heal itself. This is already happening. Um, there are various institutions across, this, across America, in this country alone, that are able to regrow cartilage or regrow certain tissues and then implant those tissues um, and uh, with, with some pretty good success, actually. Regenerative medicine also involves uh, the, use, uh, the use of stem cells and or growth factors. And it's those, those two types of products in conjunction with each other where we start seeing, you know, these regenerative responses. So for regenerative medicine therapies, we have uh, both a healing environment and a cellular environment. Now, the healing environment uh, will include things that are trying to reduce inflammation. So those can be non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or steroids themselves. They can include things like hyaluronic acid, uh, platelet-rich plasma, which includes a lot of growth factors, uh, amniotic fluid in a liquid suspension, which um, includes growth factors. It does not include cells. Okay, amniotic fluid does not include cells. Uh, amniotic fluid with, uh, uh, with other products, such as different matrices, okay, extracellular matrices uh, in a suspension format, and then Wharton's jelly liquid suspension. There are a lot of growth factors that are found in the Wharton's jelly as well. Cellular products may include lipoaspirate. Lipoaspirate includes um, uh, stem cells that are derived from autologous sources, the fat, fat tissue, adipose tissue. Uh, we'll get into that a little later. Uh, it is a technique that we use actually in our practice, and uh, so I have a lot of experience with that technique and, and happy to share that. Uh, bone marrow aspirate, aspirate concentrate, umbilical cord blood, and finally umbilical cord mesenchymal stem cells, or MSCs. Platelet-rich plasma has been around for many years, many decades. Um, uh, I'm sure all of you have heard of platelet-rich plasma. It's probably, you know, uh, some would say that it's the first real type of regenerative medicine that we have been able to offer. So again, around for decades, it's uh, when you take autologous blood in concentrations of, of platelets above baseline levels, which contains at least seven growth factors. Uh, the PRP is taken directly from the patient, so it's the patient's own blood. These are not non-autologous products. They can't be because they're not uh, spun down or they're not uh, immunoprivileged cells. So they're patient's own blood that is spun down right then in real time and then redeployed into the patient in the same visit. And uh, this can be deployed into a variety of different places and tissues. Um, really, the, the only places I, I believe that... that uh, have not been injected and probably should not be injected is the central nervous system, so spinal cord, brain, uh, CSF. Uh, we've seen PRP injected in virtually every other uh, area of the body. Uh, PRP contains growth factors that trigger localized inflammation, uh, again, trigger localized inflammation, not an anti-inflammatory response, actually an inflammatory response, specifically to try to trigger the body to heal itself. So it triggers an inflammatory response, collagen production, and other regenerative processes. So again, uh, I think we are, what, surpassing 30 years now that, regenerative, that uh, PRP has been used. So some of the advantages of PRP, one of the biggest advantages is autologous. I mean, you have theoretically an endless supply. Um, you know, the patient can come back the next day or the next week or whatever it is, and, and, and obviously you can uh, draw blood again. The amount of blood that you need to draw is relatively minimal. So you're not looking at pints of blood. You're looking at very small amounts. Uh, you're looking at vials, not pints. It's relatively cheap. Uh, really, the biggest expense is the 
initial expense of buying a centrifuge, the equipment that's used, and then the labor that's involved in drawing blood and reinjecting. But, but all in all, it's relatively cheap compared to some of the other solutions that are out there. And it can be reproducible geographically. Uh, once you know what you're doing and once you have all the proper equipment, uh, it really is um, not very technically challenging, assuming that you have, again, competent providers as well as you know, verified equipment. What are the disadvantages? Well, number one, the mechanism of action. It causes inflammation. So a lot of patients will complain of inflammation and complain of more pain, more stiffness you know, uh, right afterwards. Some patients don't particularly like that, obviously. Um, you can even get an infection. The, these are not sterilized uh, products, right? They're drawn directly from the patient and injected into the patient. If there are viruses or, or bacteria in that product, this is not filtered out or UV filtered or anything like that. Um, in the process of doing that, you, you may actually damage what you're actually trying to do. So it's not. So you, you have a chance of infection and spreading infection. You also have a chance of unwanted products, such as white blood cells, uh, certain cytokines, other inflammatory cells, and uh, as I just said, infections. Other disadvantages that, that, that are associated with PRP include, um, number one, whether the treatment should even be used. There are many people out there who don't believe in PRP and who think that maybe it's, it's really not worth it. It's not worth the price or worth the risk. Uh, some of those people don't believe, believe that all regenerative medicine shouldn't be used. Some of them believe that we should use products that are um, maybe a little more verified or products that have undergone some type of processing where you filtered out maybe some of the contaminants. Um, people wonder whether it's an effective treatment for osteoarthritis. It has been injected into joints. Some people have noticed success. Other people say, well, maybe it's not worth the cost. Um, there's questions about what concentration should we use? What amount should we use? How do we know what cytokines, or how do we know what cytokines or growth factors or other products are actually in the final mixture that is injected? We don't know, and that's the bottom line, is, is, is we don't know. We, we're harvesting it from the patient, and we have no way of guaranteeing what the final product is going to look like. So that's one of the disadvantages, and it's actually one of the reasons why uh, you probably will not see just regular old PRP from the patient ever FDA approved or insurance is paying for it because you don't really know what you're paying for at that point because every single harvest could theoretically be different than a previous harvest. So brief SEO stem cells, you know, adult stem cell research began about 40 years ago. And there were a couple discoveries that were made in the 1960s. Uh, looking at bone marrow populations, they found hematopoietic stem cells, which uh, form all types of blood cells, and then bone marrow stromal cells, uh, which can form into different bone, cartilage, fat, and other fibrous connective tissue. They also found that rat brain contained two different regions of dividing cells, which became nerve cells. So this became very exciting because obviously, as you, as you can imagine, the ability to potentially grow new tissues out of cells that already exist in all of us uh, was an amazing discovery. And still to this day, 50 years later, is um, still an amazing field. And we're still talking about how this is version, what, maybe 2.0 or 3.0. We're, we're nowhere near where the potential could be yet. So stem cell discoveries in the 1990s included neural stem cells and their ability to generate into the brain's three major types of tissues, astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, and neurons. In 1998, researchers first extracted stem cells from human embryos. And just to be clear, the type of regenerative medicine that's done today in America does not involve embryos. It does not involve killing any little babies. I get that question 
more than we, I should. And I just want to, I'm sure you guys don't have that question, but just for clarity, uh, we are not using human embryos anymore. Uh, 1999, the first successful human transplantation of insulin-making cells uh, was done in cadavers. In 2001, President Bush restricted federal funding for embryonic stem cell research. Um, that carried over really to all stem cell research because the, at the time, if you remember, the, um, uh, the association of the word stem cell meant embryonic research and or killing babies, sort of like what we have with pain management today. If you say you're a chronic pain patient, people assume you're a drug addict, even though those are totally separate things. We had the same type of stereotypes back in 2001. And so we, we lost out on almost a decade worth of research as a result. Um, 2002, California okayed stem cell research. 2004, Harvard researchers were able to grow stem cells from embryos using private funding. Also in the same year, uh, there was a ballot measure for a $3 billion bond for stem cells. 2009, uh, rabbit umbilical cord stem cells completely ab uh, abolished rat mammary carcinomas with no evidence of metastasis. Um, there are studies right now where we're looking at virus tag stem cells and other types of derivations where we've seen large tumors dissolve as a result of this therapy. Still in the research phase, so I'm not really going to make any comments about that, but uh, really an exciting, obviously, um, um, spoke of the, the stem cell world. 2013, 2017, uh, we, had, we had multiple firsts in our, our uh, uh, practice uh, where we use autologous as well as non-autologous stem cells for a variety of different conditions. Uh, stem cells. There are uh, three major stem cell types, the totipotent stem cells, pluripotent stem cells, and the multipotent stem cells. So we kind of kept a little table here of what the differences are between those stem cells because, when, again, when we talk about stem cells, what kind of stem cells are we talking about? Um, what categories are those stem cells? So you'll see that here. Uh, these slides are available uh, for later use, so I'm not going to spend too much time going over those details so we can um, make sure we have enough time for everything else. Potential uses of stem cells, we can use them really in um, uh, three major uh, locations or three major types of um, uh, businesses, if you will. One is the research side, so basic research, uh, looking at stem cells to understand the molecular basis of, of those cells as well as different diseases such as cancer. So again, just a few minutes ago, I, I mentioned uh, some of the advances that we're already seeing with some research uh, studies that are going on now using stem cells to try to fight cancer. And so that's a really exciting um, development, and, uh, and, and I personally think there's a lot of uh, potential there. Biotechnology, looking at drug development and uh, development of specific types of cells as well as uh, different medications to test against those cells. And that can be used with, uh, with stem cells. And then finally, cell-based therapy, so what we see in practice, the clinical side of stem cell treatment. Regenerative therapy, stem cells and gene therapy, uh, stem cells also in therapeutic cloning, uh, and then finally stem cells in cancer. Homologous cells and uh, tissue products, uh, which we'll abbreviate here, those uh, really uh, started um, uh, gaining traction in the 1980s uh, when, when the FDA asserted some type of authority over human tissue. And uh, to this day, that authority is still there. Um, it's a highly debated issue. Uh, we won't get into that today, but it's a highly debated issue of uh, overreach or reach, you know, compliance versus um, uh, restriction. Uh, and, and what's that line where, where, we, where they can regulate uh, and where does that line cross into um, prevention of, of adequate uh, treatment with your own cells and with your own, with your own body? 
1993, the FDA created two pathways for regulating homologous tissue and cells. And these are very uh, important uh, pathways. So you see the section uh, 361 and, and 351. And the reason these are important is because they really do dictate how we practice, all of us, how we should practice here in America when we talk about stem cells or regenerative medicine. We have to make sure that all of those cells are minimally manipulated tissues and cells intended for homologous use only, and that was section 361 that described that. Um, and there were a few exceptions to that. And then section 351 talked about biological products derived from living material, so whether human, animal, or microorganism. And that's an important section because that's where we can get now the, the umbilical cord or amniotic membrane-derived growth factors in cells has to be compliant with, obviously, Section 351. When we're using uh, the patient's own cells, we have to be compliant with Section 361. So those are very much in play now, and, and, and two um, sections that you should be familiar with if you're going to be providing this care to patients. Autologous pros and cons. So autologous stem cells, you know, your own stem cells. What are some of the pros and cons? Well, number one, you, you know where these cells are coming from. You know where they've been. Uh, you know where they were the night before, just in case you want to postpone your procedure. You know, you know what has been going on in your body, and that's kind of a nice thing to know. You know if you have an infection. You know if you don't. Uh, reduced risk of rejection and inflammation. Obviously, you're not going to reject your own cells. They're already in you. All we're doing is taking them out and putting them right back in. And the reduced risk of bacteria or virus, obviously, again, if you know where you've been and you know that you're not sick, then there's a lower chance of some type of bacterial or viral infection, as opposed to cells where you might not know where they've been or how they were stored or how they were processed. So some of the cons obviously require some type of surgical procedure. If you're doing a bone marrow aspirate, you know, someone has to physically put a trocar into your bone marrow and suck out that bone marrow. Um, if you're doing a lipoaspirate, it's essentially like getting a liposuction, uh, which still uh, is really actually relatively painless, but still involves a procedure. Uh, additional capital is required. It does cost a decent amount of money to do these procedures. There is specialized equipment, uh, dis specialized disposable equipment. A lot of these procedures are done through larger networks or societies where, you know, you have to buy those products. So those products definitely have an upcharge to them because of um, the compliance that, that is required in making sure that those products are safe to use in the procedures that you want to use them for. There's potential morbidity complications, obviously. Anytime you're doing any type of surgical procedure, you have the risk of infection and risk of bleeding or other types of complications. And then finally, low concentrations, or at least relatively low concentrations. This is all relative, of course. With lipoaspirate, you may get concentrations of about 5,000 to 500,000 MSCs per cc. With bone marrow aspirate, that concentration can be as low as 30 to 300 MSCs per cc. Now, that's still potentially relatively low compared to non-autologous cells. Uh, and that's where this whole idea of low concentration comes from. It's all a relative term. So we talked about some of the current autologous therapies. Uh, the, this picture here is actually from uh, a patient of, of ours uh, where we're using adipose-derived adult MSCs. So again, harvesting through a liposuction-like technique um, where we're able to then take out the fat, spin it down into stem cells. Then those cells are injected wherever uh, the patient um, needs them or where we think they need them or where they've requested them. One of the main pl 
places of injection it seems to be joints and specifically knees. So we've done a lot of knee joint injections with stem cells as well as other regenerative medicine products. But right now we're on the topic of adult uh, autologous uh, uh, adult MSCs that are adiposely derived. Uh, so we have seen a pretty decent uh, response in terms of success. Uh, but we, we withhold discussing the percentages and all those things because of the FDA. Um, um, you have to be very careful when you talk about stem cells because you want to look like you're promoting something without the data to back it up or the perceived data to back it up. Um, other places that MSCs, especially autologous MSCs, have been injected is literally everywhere throughout the body, including the CNS. Um, we've, we've seen in our own practice resolution of multiple sclerosis in, in about half a dozen patients with uh, CNS um, uh, as well as IV uh, deployed autologous stem cells. So that's obviously very promising. In fact, the FDA, I believe it was the FDA that put out a, a statement about a year ago that said, uh, that said some of the results that they're seeing, some of the results going on, and you start to that's not no, me. That was someone, um, someone else. Some of the results that we're seeing with stem cells are already better than any of the medications that are approved right now for, um, okay. for MS. There's, I think there's a microphone on in the back or something. Is that not me? Yeah, yeah. All right, thanks. Probably someone in the bathroom or something. <laughs> I'm not taking a pee right here. Um, the number of stem cells that we've been able to harvest in our, our practice has been anywhere in the millions to tens of millions. Uh, when we are doing adult-derived, uh, adipose-derived uh, stem cells. And we're doing about 60 cc's of adipose tissue to obtain about one cc's, one cc of final product that has over a million cells. All right. Um, bone marrow aspirate concentrate. So, again, we talked about this uh, briefly. But same concept as lipoaspirate. You're just taking bone marrow now. And, again, uh, 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 no. taking out all the other products, trying to leave a sort of refined stem cell product. And, uh, and, and that has also been injected in various joints with, uh, with, uh, with good results as well. Non-autologous pros and cons, so some of the advantages of non-autologous products. So these are products that are derived most typically from, uh, from placental donors and the umbilical cord or amniotic membrane of those placentas. So those non-autologous pros include higher concentrations of MSC. So here we're looking at potentially 2 million per cc, as opposed to maybe 1 million or less uh, with the autologous options. Epigenic, epigenetically young cells. So these are brand new cells. They're, they've just been born, right? As opposed to most of our patients who undergo stem cell therapy, who tend to be somewhere between the age of 40 to 70 years old. Um, those cells are much older. You're looking at, say, a half a century old cells versus brand new cells. What does that mean clinically? Uh, can't tell you. Obviously, uh, uh, you know, that would require a head-to-head -head study of some kind, which is impossible to do because, again, every time you harvest those cells, you're going to get different cells. And in, whether it's autologous or non-autologous, you never get the same exact product. So really, even if someone did undergo a study like that, um, I would quickly, regardless of what the outcomes look like, I would quickly uh, say that the, this study is great, but it looked at one point in time and can't be reflective for everything else. Uh, but they're epigenetically young cells. That we cannot dispute. And, and typically young is never worse than old when it comes to vibrance. <laughs> uh, quick and easy and reproducible. 
So we have how many births per day around the country? I, I don't even know how many, a lot, right? And what happens to those placentas? They are literally thrown in the garbage. Millions, tens of millions of stem cells and countless growth factors are thrown away on a daily basis. Um, so, so for those patients to say, you know, especially, again, if these are assuming they're healthy patients with, with no other issues, uh, for them to say, you know what, instead of throwing it in this garbage, put it in this container so this company can then use it uh, for other patients costs no one anything. And in fact, maybe it's actually cheaper to do that so they don't have to worry about the waste product, right? This company will gladly take it away from you for free. So the capital costs are lower. There's no surgery involved. The, the, the placenta is being delivered no matter what. Um, there are other no, no other sort of known complications directly from, uh, from non-autologous, except for, again, infection, bleeding, right? Some of the, the cons, I'm sorry, not, not bleeding, but infection specifically. Uh, bacteria or virus transmission. Uh, the, the chance is less than a blood transfusion. These are all screened, but it's still a risk. And it's a risk that if someone said, well, how can you guarantee um, that there are going to be no bacteria or viruses in this project. I, I can't guarantee that. No one can guarantee that. Just like you can't guarantee it for a blood transfusion. And you can't guarantee it for an autologous stem cell deployment either, right? In fact, uh, we very much can't guarantee it. All we can say is well, we're doing our procedure sterilely, but I have no idea if I'm harvesting something that's already got a bacteria or virus in there. And they're logistics too. So some of these products are cryogenically frozen. That means they have to stay at 200 degrees or negative 200 degrees Celsius, that's pretty cold. So we have, you know, our nitrogen tanks, and, and um, you have to be very careful with those nitrogen tanks. Um, I actually, uh, whoa, I think it was one of the reps uh, who uh, came to see me, and, um, and he, I noticed he had a little scar on his, on his leg, and I said, what is that? He was doing a training class on how to, you know, refill the nitrogen tanks, and, and literally, it was just the, the smallest of drops got on his, on his leg, right where, right in between, you know, his, his right above his socks, and he has like this permanent disfigured, you know, skin scar now there. Um, so you got to be very careful with this. I mean, uh, every time we handle it, it's, uh, it's scary. You know, you get it on your finger and, and goodbye finger. So uh, you got to be very careful. And that's a con for the provider, obviously, um, but also a con for the patient. If this drops below 200 degrees, uh, minus 200 degrees Celsius, you could have a spoiled product. You could have a pr product that's now um, infected. And, uh, and uh, it could happen even during the shipment, even though this is, you know, shipped on ice. How do you know somewhere along the way, you know, it didn't thaw? And, you know, well, it, well, you know if you received it in a thawed condition, um, but uh, which you would obviously immediately discard, which then means that someone's going to eat that cost. And the cost of these things could be in the thousands of dollars per shipment, uh, even tens of thousands of dollars, depending on how big the shipment is. So allergenic products that are currently available, you have umbilical cord-derived uh, mesenchymal stem cells. So these have the potential to replace lipoaspirate and bone marrow aspirate products. Uh, you have umbilical cord tissue matrices. Uh, these products are rich in hyaluronic acid, growth factors, and proteins. Uh, we have amniotic liquid suspensions that may have growth factors, proteins, hyaluronic acid. Um, also important to point out that those those liquid suspensions, those amniotic fluid uh, suspensions, do not contain stem cells. So they contain a lot of the factors that are used to help promote the stem cells, but they don't contain stem cells themselves. And then amniotic membrane. So amniotic membrane has actually started to be used quite often now for wound management, including and not limited to intraoperative management. So we've even seen, uh, finally, some, some surgeons, especially spine surgeons, 
uh, admitting that scar tissue does develop um, after spine surgery, and they've uh, started incorporating these products into their surgeries to reduce the chance of scarring. One interesting thing about amniotic membrane products um, is that they, they, they almost prevent scarring. Uh, that's, the, that's the beauty of, of, of really sort of that, uh, that phase uh, where, where, say, you know, amniotic membrane is forming or the embryo is forming. They've actually done surgeries on embryos who have spina bifida and found that no scar exists after the surgery was done. So they'll do the surgery in utero and then see that there was no scar that developed because that's just the beauty of, of development. You know, we have that opportunity to not develop scar. So when those amniotic membrane products are used, they, they heal like new tissue. They don't heal like scar tissue. Uh, so reduction of scar is, is massively important in the world of pain management because ultimately scar tissue is really one of the bane of, of, of pain management's existence. How do we get rid of scar tissue after surgery? Well, it's, it's hard. You can't go back in there and remove it. It, it scars even more. So this amniotic membrane has really become an, an option that, has, uh, that seems to have some great results. Wharton jelly is a mucous connective tissue within the umbilical cord. It originates from the extra embryonic mesoderm. It's comprised of various factors, including stromal cells, collagen factors, and proteoglycans. Um, it has a very high amount of hyaluronic acid. And as you can see in the image, um, I thought I had a laser pointer on here, but um, it's, it's right in the center there with the, with the lighter area. That's where the Wharton jelly is contained. So we've used Wharton Jelly products as well, uh, and we've seen good results as well. So it's an option that seems to be very popular now for, uh, as a substitution for lipoaspirate or bone marrow. Again, I can't tell you which is better or which is worse. Um, all I can tell you is, is that uh, all of these have been used, and, and we've seen results uh, with all of these options. Mesenchymal stem cells derived from Wharton Jelly um, have the following advantages. So uh, they're about, uh, worldwide, there are about 130 million births a year. Again, in America, I'm not sure how many there are. Uh, there's no need to have invasive harvesting methods. You know, you, we, we will obtain this placenta one way or another after, after birth. So there's no additional surgery that's, that's needed. The rate of proliferation is more than other sources, and they can be collected easily at the time of birth. Um, they're not really associated with any ethical issues. Again, this is just placenta. These are not the babies. It's placenta that's typically thrown in the, in the biohazard waste bin. Um, uh, so there's no ethical concerns here. Uh, they're immunoprivileged cells, and I think that's probably one of the biggest take-home messages here is they're immunoprivileged cells. They don't belong to the mother. They don't belong to the baby. Uh, and they don't belong to really anyone, which is why we could theoretically use it for anyone. They also have non-tumorogenic properties. That's another question that I seem to, to, to be asked many times is, how do we know that these cells are not going to turn into some type of horrible cancer? Well, right now we don't have any evidence that they do. We have some evidence that they don't. Um, but my kind of response to that is, okay, let's just play this out. Um, let's, say the, let's say that patient was supposed to get a, a horrible cancer at the age of 50 or 60, and they were going to die from that cancer. Well, typically, we're, we're using these products in patients who are, say, 40 to 70 years old. So in that 70-year-old patient, 60 years later, when they're 130, they may develop some type of cancer. Um, so we play this out. You know, we don't see uh, cancer forming with these cells. Uh, they seem to have a non-tumorogenic property. But even if they did develop cancer decades later, we're not using these, the stem cell therapy uh, most, most often in, in younger populations. We're using an older population. So, um, so again, we've never seen someone develop cancer from, from these cells. Uh, and, and as we said in the very beginning of the, of the presentation, we're actually seeing that certain cells, when tagged 
in specific ways are actually fighting cancer. Benefits of MSCs, um, some more benefits. They have the potential to migrate to sites of inflammation and reduce tissue inflammation, so a little different than PRP, which caused inflammation. These actually have an inherent anti-inflammatory uh, effect or property. Uh, they can differentiate into multiple different cells, and uh, they, may, they may also uh, uh, cause the release of bioactive molecules that can stimulate um, recovery in injured cells. Something interesting that, that also we found is that, is that when, when you put stem cells in a certain location, there's a little debate right now whether those cells themselves are differentiating or if those cells are causing cell differentiation from the existing cells that are there or if those cells are simply um, activating other compounds that promote recovery of injured cells. It's probably a little of everything, um, uh, but, but we've, we have evidence for everything. So cryopreservation for uh, human MHCs in clinical use. This is what a little cryo-freezer looks like. Um, obviously, there are different sizes of freezers. You have anything from sort of these mini little, you know, two-foot-high uh, cryo-freezers all the way up to, you know, huge cryo-freezers. Um, in a practice, you'd probably use the small ones simply because uh, they are expensive, and um, there's no need to have something that can fit hundreds of vials uh, when, when really all you need is something that can fit a few dozen vials. Umbilical cord blood uh, is, is just that. It's umbilical cord blood. You have different companies that have saved umbilical cord blood for decades, right? You know, they'll tell you, hey, once you're having a kid, they'll say, do you want to save the cord blood in case you need that later in life? That's the exact same cord blood that we're talking about here. Um, the, however, in this particular use, what they're doing is they're taking that cord blood, um, taking all of the red blood cells out of that cord blood, creating a immunoprivileged product where they've taken out the antigens, um, and really try to just maintain the cells. Um, there are a couple potential issues, though. Uh, so some of those potential issues include the fact that um, there may still be some red cells that may be found. It's virtually impossible to remove all of the red cells and all of the white blood cells from the product. So you may still have those, those cells inside that product, which could theoretically cause a reaction or cause problems. The other issue that, that we've seen, and, and this is on this slide, is um, this section where the FDA says we don't want manipulated cells. And there's a debate, you know, how manipulated are these cells? Are they minimally manipulated or more than manipula minimally manipulated? Um, um, you know, that's, that's for someone else to debate. Um, but that's, that debate's out there. Um, uh, the third is, uh, you know, how many cells are we getting and what are, what what is the potential of these cells to differentiate versus, uh, say, Wharton jelly cells? Um, again, I don't have that answer. I don't know if anyone really has that answer. Um, but it's one of the debates that's out there right now in terms of which is uh, better or worse. And then finally, the, the, the final one is obviously cost. You know, which one costs more and which one doesn't cost more. Um, uh, what we found is typically the umbilical cord blood per cell costs less. Um, but again, we don't know if that necessarily translates to better results. Uh, and we do have some, some issues that, uh, that we don't have with non-umbilical cord blood uh, products. You don't have to worry about, say, graft-versus-host disease if we're stuck with some white cells or red blood cells in our product. And we don't have to uh, worry about some of the immunologic issues we, we have with, say, umbilical cord blood versus some other products. Amniotic membrane is the inner layer of the placenta that surrounds the baby during pregnancy. Uh, it's a universal transplant. Again, it's an immunoprivileged membrane. And it has a unique structure 
which allows us to potentially use it in areas where we think that wounds are going to develop or scar is going to develop. Um, we can use am amniotic membrane products in a morselized format or a dehydrated format, and we can inject that also into joints or other tissues. So it has a pretty large application, um, and, and that becomes exciting you know, from, a, from a, a, a delivery standpoint. These, these products, though, are not um, uh, stem cell products, okay? These are growth factor products. These are cytokines. These are matrices as well. So they're not stem cell products. So when using amniotic membrane, um, some people will, there are some clinics out there who will use amniotic fluid even and call those stem cells. That's absolutely 100% false marketing, and uh, I'm, I'm surprised those places haven't been shut down yet. Uh, amniotic membrane, you know, amniotic fluid, those are not stem cell products. Uh, they are growth factor products and other you know, cytokines and other uh, mediators. These are terminally sterilized products. So what does that mean? That means that these are actually sterilized products. Um, so there are no cells. If there were any cells, they're dead. Um, which, is, which is a good thing because from, from an application standpoint, in many situations we're using large amounts of this product, especially when it comes in a film, um, to put on wounds or to put on surgical areas. And uh, we want a pure sterile product um, that uh, we're not really looking at cells. You can see in the bottom uh, right corner, that's actually a picture of, of the film. So if you're able to make that out in the back, uh, the person is actually holding a piece of that film. Amniotic fluid, again, uh, sort of touched on this a few times. Uh, there's a lot of amniotic fluid that's available, and so this becomes a, a product that is much more widely available than, say, Wharton's jelly. There isn't as much Wharton jelly that's available in a delivery as there is amniotic fluid. Um, so this product tends to be cheaper as well. Uh, this product, again, is not a stem cell product. It's a growth factor product. Um, and there's been a lot, of, a lot of debate whether or not amniotic fluid is really um, worth it. Uh, since we have these better technologies. Um, uh, but it's something that you should know about. A lot of, uh, a lot of clinics right now are using amniotic fluid um, and, and calling it stem cells. They're not stem cells. It's, it's really just uh, cytokines, hyaluronic acid, various proteins and growth factors as well. So there, how do we find out how many cells you know, we have when we inject a certain area? You know, we'll say, hey, we've got a million cells, two million cells. Well, we have cell counters. Uh, and the various cell counters, here's some pictures of a few cell counters, but every clinic should have one of these. If you're going to enter the stem cell world um, or refer to someone who does you know, stem cells, uh, they, should, they should absolutely invest in all the right products. So they need to be able to count how many cells they're, they're uh, um, injecting or deploying. And so they have to have the right equipment to do that. So here's a picture of some of that equipment. Some of the differentiation that we can see with some of that equipment um, includes these different markers. So we can sometimes see what kind of markers uh, these cells have. Some of the markers that are really essential that we found include something called CD73, CD90, and CD105. Now, while that said, we're also making sure that other markers are not present. Those markers can include CD14, CD35, and CD, uh, I'm sorry, 34 and 45. Those markers imply that we have a larger amount of red cells and white cells, which we, which we don't want. Um, so, so this is why I say flow cytometry comes in handy. And if a practice has that, or if they're ordering products from a company that has already done this work, uh, that is essential. That is essential. That is, I don't think is a, an optional thing. Um, we're seeing a lot more research in this field. We're seeing a lot more research on just MSCs in general. 
And it's estimated that, um, that last year we had over 500 publications about MSCs. So as we go on in time, so even next year, even next year, by, give the, let's say we have this lecture next year, we're going to have even more information and more studies that will come out. So what are some of the challenges that we see with uh, regenerative medicine? You know, it sounds all great that we have these options. But wh why, you know, why are we running into problems? Why is this not something that's more widely accepted? And I'll, I'll give you the, the, the few reasons why. Uh, number one, FDA restrictions, um, which is good and bad. It's good because if it wasn't for the FDA, it would be the Wild West. It already is the Wild West. And that's been one of the bad things. Uh, we have so many fake clinics that have opened up. And as a result, the FDA has clamped down even more now, even at the legitimate clinic side, right? They can't pick out which clinic, so they'll just say, you know what, we're going to make this even more restrictive. So as of May of this year, we can no longer treat patients with lipoaspirate MSCs um, for, uh, for um, central uh, nervous system disorders. How's that? So all of these things that we saw with MS, all of these things that we saw with various other diseases, I mean, we even had a guy who had a, a spinal stroke and uh, wasn't able to move his leg, and I, I deployed the cells right around the, the damaged nerve roots, and he's able to lift his leg about that far off the ground, uh, which is great. And then after that, obviously, therapy and everything. That was with one deployment. Um, <clears throat> we can't do that anymore. They put a stop on that in May, not because of what we were doing, but because of what all the fake clinics are doing. And so that's a big problem. Uh, restrictions are good, um, but the problem is, is that um, uh, you know, they tend to protect, they tend to, they, they, they tend to be very harsh to make sure that the 10% of the bad guys out there don't have an opportunity to swindle people. <clears throat> so that's one major problem. Uh, insurance coverage is another issue. Um, and I don't expect that to change anytime soon <clears throat> because there are so many options out there. And what is the standard? I mean, just with this presentation alone, I've probably, maybe, con if I've done my job correctly, I've confused you more than I've helped you because you've now seen that there are so many options out there. And none of those options we can say is necessarily better than another option. What we can say is there is a right way of doing things and a wrong way of doing things. Um, but because there's so much variability, even with autologous cells, there's so much variability, how can we expect insurance companies to cover something when they don't actually know what they're covering at that exact moment? Whereas, say, a medication, or even an injection or even a surgery, there's some type of very set protocols as to what the insurance company is paying for. There's physician variability. We've, we've seen that uh, very much um, with uh, both, both from a technical standpoint but also from a, a training standpoint. Um, uh, one of the big things we see in the Chicago area is there's some chiropractors that are doing stem cells. Um, uh, but they're not allowed to, so they'll hire an unemployed doctor to do it. And, uh, and we've seen some uh, complications from that in our, uh, you know, patients coming to us reporting complications. Product variability. There are multiple different products out there. There are many companies. I have specifically made a point not to talk about any single company in this presentation. Um, and we've done that because uh, I'm not here to promote any company, uh, but also because um, I, I don't even know, you know, which... I have experience with various companies, and I can tell you with my experience, I think this company is better than that. But there is no hard data comparing every single company and every single product. So there's product variability. There are some companies that I don't work with because they have, they've made multiple false claims about their products and, and misrepresented the science, so I can't trust them. Um, and then finally, just the, these counterfeit services and products. So we, we are also seeing that as well. 
where uh, clinics are popping up saying they're doing stem cells when no stem cells are being administered. Um, the products they may be administering may not be the actual products that they claim to be administering. So these are some of the challenges uh, we see, and these challenges honestly overlap pain management, right? We see those same challenges within pain management all the time. You'll see pill mills and drug dealers and whatever, and then they assume we're all those people. We'll see, you know, we might see a drug addicted patient, and they'll assume all patients are addicted. So, so these, these aren't very different than what we see with pain management in general. Um, any questions? Um, I've known, I have cases where patients with uh, HIV uh, viral cardiomyopathies have uh, recovered normal uh, left ventricular and diastolic volumes after beginning growth hormone. And I know autopsy studies and animal studies have shown regenerative thymus gland uh, germinal centers in middle-aged HIV-infected patients that look like newborns. Um, so there's human growth hormone seems to me to have a place in the regenerative medical field. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, so the question uh, or statement was about human growth hormone or HGH. Uh, so I specifically actually left out all hormones uh, because of the as you know, the complex domino effect that occurs with hot hormones. You know, what's, what, what is the whole process that's going on? Uh, so, so all hormones of, of any type left off, off of this and specifically focused on, you know, stem cells and, and say, growth factors that work with the stem cells directly. But thank you for that. Yes, thanks a lot for the talk. Uh, I know you said you can't uh, tell us which one is better, uh, but how did you make, because you seem like in your clinic you've used just about all of them, how did you make a decision as to which one you used for a specific patient? Uh, well, um, it helped that we were, we've been doing this for a few years. So that was one. So we, we ended up, um, a lot of people approached us first. In fact, a couple of companies approached us before they even launched. Um, and um, so criteria number one uh, was honestly, like anything else, legitimacy of, of what they were even saying. So uh, we had uh, one company in specific uh, um, that's not here, actually. Um, I think there are a couple companies that are here. This one is not here. Uh, they, their, um, their science guys were making false statements, and their marketing guys were just completely off the wall. So I don't know if their product was any good, but I can trust them as a company. So we never even used their product. Um, other companies had their science really locked down and they had you know, studies on their own products and everything like that. Um, and so we, we obviously then said, Let's, well, we'll try that product. And anytime we go with any product, we tell the patients. So we actually tell the patients also, we have a couple companies we're going to use. These are the companies that you can use. And then we'll ask the patient which one of those particular companies you know, they want to use. If they say, hey, duh, I don't know, then, uh, then we'll, we'll go with what we think is, is the best. Um, some other, other criteria could include, well, we may come down and we say, you know what, there's these three companies that we really trust. We've used their products. We think they work. But this company charges, you know, whatever, 1000 This one charges 2000 This one charges 3000 Patient, which one do you want? I'm not going to tell you that this is better than that, um, but this is what the charges are. And so sometimes it may be dictated based on price. Uh, um, sometimes it is dictated based on the patient does their own homework. You know, a lot of patients that we've seen have become very well-educated on this. 
and done a, I mean, we've seen patients that are, I mean, I could learn from them, you know. Um, but in many situations, uh, it's, it's been um, uh, the initial contact uh, and the initial contacts and talking with their, you know, chief medical guys, talking with uh, um, even the CEOs of those companies and seeing if I have a level of trust with them. Um, and I was able to do that initially. I mean, now I'm not sure if they would give me that access or anyone else that access because this whole field is blown up so much. Go ahead. FDA restricted how many the count of the amount of stem cell in the injection or in the amount you take. Uh, in your opinion, what is the reason we restrict uh, the number? Mm -hmm. So the, yeah, the, the question is, um, um, you know, has the FDA restricted the amount of cells that we can inject, and and, and why is there a restriction, or what what should we be using? Um, uh, actually, I'm not familiar if the, if the FDA has specifically put a restriction on the amount of cells that can be injected, say, in a joint or something like that. Is that your question? Or? No, the question is the FDA restricts the amount, how many, in any uh, So are you saying that they're wondering about the restriction of the amount of injections or the amount of cells in the injection? Amount of cells in the injection. Um, you know, I, we haven't run into that. Uh, but then again, we're not, we're probably not injecting crazy amounts of cells uh, uh, for two reasons. Number one, because the amount you can actually harvest autologously is, is limited by the patient. So we're never going to, we, we never have these 100 million, 200 million cell counts when we do autologous harvesting. Uh, we're usually in the million cell count, maybe, maybe you know, 10, 20, whatever million cell counts. Um, the second uh, reason is if you're buying non-autologous cells, and let's say you want to use, you know, 50 million cells, I mean, the price of that is going to be so gigantic that no one's going to pay for that. And I'm not sure you actually need to anyway, because there comes a point where you have this uh, diminished return. So some, some research actually says that if we use too many cells, we may see a diminished return, almost like the cells are sort of battling battling it out or something, but, but it, it doesn't work as well. So most people, like for a joint, most people have said that over 10 million cells in a joint is really pretty, um, not, not going to help anymore. It, and again, th those are numbers that are thrown out there um, uh, based on observ probably observational data. Uh, so, you know, th this, this is the type of field where it's not like uh, you, you can say for sure, oh my gosh, I use 11 million cells, I'm going to have a bad result, or I use 9 million cells, I'm going to have a great result. Um, but the data that I've seen is about 10 million cells, no more than 10 million cells per uh, joint. And if anything more of that seems kind of pointless, you're wasting cells and you may have a diminished return. So, oh, and, uh, I think he was raising it first. You mentioned when you uh, use stem cells for uh, central nervous system disorders, you inject IV or sometimes directly. Mm -hmm. Where do you inject directly? Into the epidural space? In, 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 in the actual CSF. So, um, in the actual yeah, in the actual CSF, CSF yeah. So, it would be um, you know, just like doing a spinal. Um, but, um, uh, and we had great results, zero side effects. And, um, uh, but yeah, as of May, uh, FDA said you can't even do that anymore. So. Thank you. 
uh, on autologous uh, stem cell or um, PRP, when is all too old to really be worthwhile? In other words, after the age of 50, is not worth it after the age of 60? Is there, is there an age limit? Yeah, so uh, it, the question is age limit on autologous harvesting for stem cells. I don't think there's an age limit. We've done patients who are, I think our oldest was in her 80s, and she really wanted it. Um, and she did not want non-autologous. She really had a, uh, an objection to that, like a personal objection to that. Um, uh, yeah, there's no age limit, right? The, the age limit really becomes just surgical risk at that point. Um, but there's no age limit per se. Now, how well are those cells working if you're 80? Uh, don't know. Don't know. And, and that's probably patient-dependent. I think, I, I think all we can say is that that new stem cell is probably going to work just as well, if not better, than the 80-year-old stem cell. Um, I, I also can say that there, uh, the data I've seen is that when, uh, at least, you know, again, from, from what, what, uh, what people think, by the time we reach about 70 or so, uh, about one-tenth of the cells are actually going to be really viable. So if we harvest 10 million cells, probably one million are actually viable. The rest of them really aren't going to be doing what we want them to do. Uh, so then the debate becomes, do we use 10 million of your own cells, or do we just use one million non-autologous cells, and will those potentially work you know, as well or better? Um, can't, I can't tell you for sure, though, obviously. right? But that's, those are the opposing hypotheses. your experience well with the PRP injection as an epidural and if you're doing it? Yeah, so PRP for epidural, there's actually uh, some people who are uh, very much uh, advocating for that now. And in fact, uh, not just PRP, but modified versions of PRP, purer forms of PRP. Um, and they're saying that, it, you know, they're seeing an anti-inflammatory effect from it. Um, there was a study that came out earlier this year uh, talking about that. Um, however, that study was met with uh, uh, some resistance from the community because the study protocols uh, were not really that great. And, um, uh, and so, so, so the data became questionable because the study protocols were not, were not that great. Um, my thought on that is uh, I, I would not, I would, I would, I'm really not a fan of injecting something that could potentially have other cells or potential, in, you know, inf infectious cells into or around the spinal cord. Just, I just think that's um, dangerous. Like, I mean, you, know, you inject it in a muscle or a tendon, and worst thing, okay, fine, you get a little infection here, we treat it. But in the spine, I mean, that's a major problem. So I'm not a big fan of, of just regular PRP. If we, had a, if we had a PRP version that I knew was sterile, um, then, then that would be something I'd get more excited about. But just not regular PRP that I, that I cannot guarantee doesn't have cell, you know, white cells or bacteria or whatever. So what regenerative techniques are you using for epidurals then, if not PRP? Um, well, right now, for, for right now, as of, as of May. Um, you can't do anything. Done. You'd be violating what the FDA said. What about PRP? Uh, PRP, I don't know if the FDA, is, FDA, I don't think has come down on PRP, but, but all cells. Uh, they've come down on, you know, in, in, in uh, the spine or the epidural space. So... If you say you're using it for like facet joint or degenerative disc, that is the FDA okay with that? Uh, good question. Um, good question. Um, I have to look at the wording again. Um, I, I know it just said spine, but I have to look at the wording. So, you know. Do you know what is the practice in Europe? If they, 
I think they're still using PRP as a, for epidural injection. Oh, I'm, I'm sure they're doing more in Europe than they are here. They have been for, uh, for forever when it comes to stem cells. We've, we've been a little behind the curve, especially Israel. Israel has been, uh, you know, I mean, they've been doing stuff that's, uh, um, I think uh, I just heard from someone they were doing a study where they were, uh, you know, injecting the actual spinal cord itself with stem cells, like in paralyzed patients, and they're getting results. Um, I think I just heard that from someone about a month ago. So, um, yeah, they, they've been pushing the envelope on stem cells for, for decades. So, um, yeah, we, we've not been the leaders because of, of the restrictions. But, again, the restrictions are not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's what has kept because us safer, hopefully. I've seen patients post-PRP epidural injection that they got worse, actually. So, yeah, yeah. So I've seen that. Yeah. And then the other thing is, what is your ex uh, experience with post-stem cell transplant chronic pain? So the donor has a chronic pain post-stem cell. Have you ever seen mm. anything like uh, that? We have not seen that. Uh, now, uh, was that har how were they harvesting, though? Was it bone marrow or lipoaspirate? Bone aspirate. Yeah, so that I would believe. Um, I, I, you know, and we've seen that even after in oncology patients, we see that all the time as well. You know, bone marrow aspiration is barbaric. And there's no other way to, it's, it's a very, I mean, you're putting a. The donor, right, yeah, it's because of the aspiration itself. I mean, lipoaspirate is so simple and benign, and you're just, you're just, you're just uh, you're, uh, um, breaking up the fat and sucking it out. Uh, with higher concentration, yeah. Of bone marrow? Yeah, I, we don't see one. We don't do it. Yeah, I don't, I, I, yeah we, we just do lipoaspirate. There's, um, you, you can ask the different companies, and obviously there's some companies that have some serious financial incentive in one technology versus another. Um, I don't. I unfortunately do not own any of those companies. But um, I, I truly don't see a, a with, with the current bone marrow aspirate technology, um, I don't see an advantage over lipoaspirate. Let me be very clear, the, the very specific lipoaspirate technology we're doing, there's lipoaspirate technology out there that sucks. Um, and um, it's almost a sham. It's not even real lipoaspirate. Uh, well, it is lipoaspirate, but they're not actually, they're just, it's crap product, right? Um, so, um, so there is variations out there with lipoaspirate. Not all lipoaspirate is the same. Not all bone marrow aspirate is the same. But the issue with bone marrow aspirate, again, there's two universal issues. One, you have to, you have to, put a trocar and, 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 you know, put a little hole in someone's bone. You can't escape that. And you can't escape the fact that the bone marrow itself only has so much stem cell, right? So those are two things you can't escape. But, yeah, go ahead. What size filters are you using for the uh, IV stem cells? Oh, my gosh. Um, wow, good question. I have to ask my nurses. <laughs> I'll get back to you. I, I don't remember. I think, you know what it is? I'll tell you. Uh, oh, you know, I don't want to misstate it. You know, that's a great question. I have to find out. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's um, I, I think it's the same filters we use in, like, blood transfusions. Um, uh, but, but again, I, I don't remember which ones. But I think it's, like, the same ones you'd use in the blood transfusion. But, they're, but the, the cells, uh, I think the stem cells themselves are obviously smaller than the, the, the filter, right? Um, but I think it's the same one. But, again, I'd have to ask them. The big craze in my community is A2M. I noticed that you didn't really touch mm -hmm. on that. Was there a reason why? Um, yeah, just, just uh, I think it's because, um, um, at, least, at least for now, I don't think I have enough information to, to, uh, to, to really give you a presentation with, uh, with facts and not opinions. Um, I tried to keep this presentation with, with facts uh, and tried to leave out opinion. It was just very hard to do. 
because, because so much of this is, is, is a lot of anecdotal stuff. Uh, it, this is, this is a, um, uh, it's not only anecdotal, but so much of this, it, you, you're almost prevented in what you can say because of, of FDA restrictions, right? You don't want to come across as saying something that is promoting something that we're not supposed to promote. May I ask your opinion? Yes, you may ask my opinion, absolutely. I don't have an opinion because I haven't used it. <laughs> I'm waiting for the dust to settle before. Um, but um, it does show promise. It does show promise. We've anecdotally heard of, of, um, uh, of, of uh, clinics that have seen good results. But yeah, yeah. So um, we've actually there's a uh, there's a company that I'm working with, um, or I, well, I've not work with. I've, I've met a few times um, that's tried to pitch us their product and, and tried to have us as one of their sources for their studies. Um, I think. Um, I, th I think this was one situation where I didn't want to necessarily, I, I felt like the, the products and services that we had already on paper had more potential. Um, so the advantage could be a cost advantage potentially, but I, I, I right now I'm not seeing, I'm not intellectually in my mind, I don't know if it necessarily has uh, more runway, price aside, I think some of the products that we already have on the market that um, we have experience with on the market have a, a longer runway in the sense of more potential. Um, I think the biggest potential there is, is cost and, and availability, right? Um, but yeah, that's exactly how I, do, I look at it. I look at it as a, as a cleaner PRP, um, which potentially you may use in epidural space, if, uh, you know, but um, I, I don't think I would do that yet. Like, or I wouldn't, personally. That's one of the few things I'm not going to push the boundaries on. I'm going to wait for other people to do it. So what are the FDA approved procedures for pre-management None. Okay. Hey, well, te technically, technically, if you want to you know, really uh, split hairs, you could argue that epidural steroid injections are not, you know, FDA approved in the sense the steroid medication is not FDA approved in the epidural space, which had a whole long... Uh, uh, a really nasty article from the New York Times a couple months ago on that, which uh, they totally missed the point of everything. Um, but uh, yeah, so 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 none um, stem cells themselves are off label, if you will, right? They, as the FDA has set restrictions, but the FDA has not said that you can you can do this. They have told us when we cannot do this, but they haven't told us that we can do this. So that's where this approval comes in. When you have an approval, that means that they say you can do this. Yeah, no, right. So, so all, all of this, all of all of the stem cells, right? There's no FDA approval for any of them. Um, so we're working off a lack of disapproval, and 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 so once the FDA says you can't do this, then we don't do that, right? So, so I, yeah, it's it's yeah, I know it's uh, yeah, yeah, and I think we we uh, yeah we went over. Uh, which one? No, not this one. Are you talking about? Are you talking about the the, the two sections that were this one or? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. 
Right. Right, but, but, but again, those, so you're talking about that designation, right? So the medically cleared designation is what you're talking about? Um, we still want, I, I don't know if we'd ever have that with this because, again, that's a, that's a reproducible product to exact manufacturer specifications over and over. This is not. But we might. I mean, they may be able to say the process is what's cleared and not the cells. So if they say the process is cleared, then, yeah, we can have that clearance. Which, which they've probably done, right, for the companies that, and, and you know, we could even ask some of the, 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 the guys behind the scenes who work for these companies, there are a couple here. Um, the process is, has been cleared in the sense that they're allowed to do this. But, but the cells themselves, I, I just don't ever see a cell, a product being approved because it's, each product is different. It's not like a drug. But the process is cleared. So I'm sorry to answer, I'm sorry to answer your question. The, the process, you know, when a company does, makes products, their process is cleared or allowed, but, that, but that's different than approved. So there's three different designations. There's approved, cleared, and then, you know, not allowed. Um, so, so the process is cleared, but the cells or the products are not approved or cleared, um, but the process of creating those, right? Now, with lipoaspirate or bone marrow aspirate, it's not a clearance or a non-clearance issue because it's a medical service, right? So, so for a medical service, um, you're practicing within the scope of practice by doing a certain, you know, say a surgery. Like we have a plastic surgeon doing ours. So that's within his scope of practice to, to do the liposuction. Actually, pretty much anyone can, but he's, that's what he does for a living, so we have him doing that. So does that clear up? It's a little confusing with FDA um, here. Yeah, yeah, so we're part of the Cell Surgical Network, which is actually based in California. I think they have about 100 physicians or so. Um, and, uh, and yeah, yeah, and so their, their protocols, I mean, we've had, you know, zero issues.